I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 142. Today in the show, we are joined by outdoor writer PJ Riley, and we're discussing his whitetail lessons learned while hunting deer in the Northeast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, we're joined by PJ Riley, a super serious whitetail hunter and an outdoor writer hailing from the great state of Pennsylvania. And PJ has written for North American Whitetail Magazine, Game and Fish Mag, uh, Bowhunting.com, Lancaster Archery Supply, and many other publications. And we're going to be chatting with PJ today all about hunting whitetails in the northeast a whole bunch of different things related to that region of the country and we're also going to touch on some things related to archery and then just a whole bunch of other lessons learned that pj's had when it comes to chasing deer across the country so i think that's gonna be really interesting i'm excited to talk to pj but before we get that conversation going we need to pause here briefly for our weekly parenting advice segment from my co-host dan johnson (laughs) right (laughs) I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's funny that you bring this up because I just had. <laughs> of course, I, I was like you did. really. Ex- I was really excited to talk about like deer hunting, right, <laughs> or sheds hunting, or something like that. And, but it's funny you bring that up because I just had a conversation with my daughter, and her question to me. <laughs> she comes I, I have this little office it's next to the bathroom and she was going to the bathroom and she came in she she came out of the bathroom and her her pants were down and I said Ava what are you doing she's like oh dad um why do I have to wipe my butt after I poop <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you know I don't know how to answer that really <laughs> so I just did what I always do. No matter what, I always say, oh, because of germs now, go wash your hands or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I, wow. that's it's almost like I need advice sometimes. 
do you do you need advice on why you need to wipe your butt? <laughs> well, because you know, it's like I told Abe. I'm like, because you don't want to be known as the girl at preschool with stinky butt. True. You know, we all know that one person who had stinky butt growing up, and yeah. we. Yeah, you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. I can think of that person in my head right now from my school. <laughs> yep, yep. Don't want to be that guy. It's the same guy that. It's the same guy or gal that had to wear the poop your pants pants. Yeah, that's no you good. Know, the, ex, the extra pants that were sitting in your, in your classroom that if you pooped your pants, you had to wear the poop your pants pants. <laughs> and everybody at that point <laughs> knew who pooped their pants because they were usually like. Some 1970s suede, just Velcro. <laughs> Velcro I don't know. Anyway, sounds, so it sounds like in America. It sounds like you really know what these pants look like and felt like, and all that kind of stuff, Dan. <laughs> yeah, there's this kid named Brock in my oh in my yeah sure. elementary school. Sure, and it was he Brock wore them all the time. <laughs> sure, it wasn't a Dan. No, I never pooped my pants, man. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> Dear. Deer. Like you said, deer. <laughs> deer. So what's up? You find any shed yet? Dude, you know, I live in Michigan. Mm-hmm. I haven't found a shed. I've done a little walking. I think I think since we last talked, um, I picked up a new piece of shed hunting permission. I walked that, and uh, I thought it would be, well, I thought there's a decent chance because I've been seeing a lot of deer feed out in this cut bean field, and there were some, some kind of brushy draws and some timber and then a cut bean field right next to it and uh, I was kind of excited to walk that I walked it last week maybe Wednesday or Thursday for a couple hours and didn't find a thing but uh, later that night I happened to be nearby and and saw out there in the field that I walked three antler bucks so the deer here seemed at least those were still holding so I'm gonna try again maybe next week there and um and see if maybe those antlers dropped. And I'm going to try to get permission on the properties, two properties that are adjacent to this one um, that have a little more cover. And um, and maybe maybe pick one up. They're, one of the bucks was, was pretty nice for, uh, for a Michigan deer. He was just a good two-year-old, I guess. So that would be a nice set if, uh, if I could happen to find him. So that's about all that's been going on for me so far. I, uh, I'm just excited. I leave tomorrow morning bright and yeah, early buddy. to go to Iowa. Nice. So pumped about Sounds that. like your boy Ross Hossman's probably Hassman, Hossman, Ross Hossman. Right? <laughs> I, I like to call him Ross Hoss, Hossman, but Ro- it's Hausman okay. is the correct, correct pronunciation. All right. R-S, R-H. Yeah. All right. R-H. All right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he's probably found all the sheds already if there is any. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I went, I went on a drive with my kids on Sunday night. We drove around. Dude, I bet you I saw close to 200 deer. Out in the fields, you know, an hour before the sun was going down, no antlers, but they all looked like does, right? You know, yeah. so this time, this time of year, you can typically tell if they're a buck because their tarsal glands might be stained a little bit uh, more than the normal, the normal animal. Uh, so that's one way I can tell if it's a buck and maybe it's shed its antlers. However, I turned around this corner and I saw seven bucks all holding their uh, antlers still, except for one, and he was the biggest one, and he had already shed one side. Wow. So um, there, they were all still holding, and uh, yeah, there's that. Yeah, it seems like. <clears throat> excuse me. Been hearing from a lot of people that um, it just seems maybe maybe they're holding a little bit longer this year. So I'm hoping that by the time we're down there, you know. 
hopefully there's going to be some antlers on the ground but but ross has been has been walking some of his properties already and found some so they're on the ground it's just a matter of um you know being out there at the right time in the right place so we've got we've got a handful of properties that to my knowledge haven't been walked yet um so hopefully those gonna be a pretty big group of us and um hopefully we'll come up with something between the between the group so we're heading out tomorrow morning me and my buddy dustin and we're gonna walk some property i have permission on tomorrow and then my buddy Corey is gonna meet us tomorrow night and maybe ross too and then we're gonna camp and then the next day all of us plus peter another friend are gonna be walking and then i think you possibly will be meeting us on friday right yeah i think i'm taking a half day off work and uh uh, be there between 10 and 11. Nice. So we'll all do some walking and then, um, we'll be camping out and camping Friday and Saturday and shed hunting Saturday and Sunday. And I don't know, it's gonna be a lot of fun, a lot of good times, a lot of laughs and hopefully some antlers. So I'm stoked. did you say Cor did you say Corey fall was coming? Yeah, he'll be there Thursday night. All right. So is he going to be walking on the, one of the flanks? <laughs> or do you put him in the dead, the, the middle of the line? I don't know. I don't know what the proper placement would be. <laughs> do you have any advice? I just, I don't want to be the guy to the left or right of him. <laughs> so, so the plan, Dan, is um, I actually have got a setup for us to record a podcast all together while we're there. So maybe Friday night when we get done you and me and the rest of the guys, we can all sit down on the campfire and do a podcast talking about the day's shed hunting exploits. So uh, nice. we'll get to give Corey some crap in person, <laughs> which will be fun. Mm -hmm. So looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. Anything else new for you? Not really, man. Just, uh, I think this weekend I might go take a couple shorter walks with the wife as, uh, Ava's going to a birthday party and I got a babysitter for Saturday, uh, like a sleepover type situation. So I'm getting rid of one kid. So I figured I might uh, get someone to watch the other kid and spend some time with the wife and get her out, stretch the legs a little bit. And maybe if I'm good Sunday and have enough brownie points built up, I might go on another big one down south. Uh, but this weekend is also the Iowa Deer Classic, which is kind of always fun to go to. However, I think I like shed hunting just a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. I do want to go to the classic one of these years, but uh but it Were won't you be at this it year. Before? The Iowa classic before? I've never been to the Iowa show. Mm. I think the like first it, time I like met you was was that at the Michigan show? The first time I ever met you? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. I thought maybe the first time we'd met was at one of the film schools way back in the day. But yeah, could have maybe not. Could have been. I don't know. It's been a those long time. Were blurry. Yeah, those were blurry for me. Yeah, for multiple reasons. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? I have another random piece of exciting news. I just, What's that? I just, I just paid for, and um, because of, well, I believe it's guaranteed, I just paid for and got my Montana deer hunting license for the 2017 season. Oh, badass. Yeah. yeah, I talked with Randy. I talked with Randy Newberg a while back uh, on the phone and he's like, you, "Dan, you got to get out here sometime." Mm -hmm. So, uh one of these days. Yeah, man. It's Maybe uh, next maybe 2018 I'll go. There you go. You just got to stop uh you got to stop popping out all these babies, Dan. You got to make sure you got time to <laughs> get out and hunt. Well, I don't think that announcement has been made on this podcast. 
What announcement's that? The announcement that I'm having a third kid due October 28th. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't trying to force that. I didn't know if that was if that was okay yet. But. No, I I made the announcement what uh, on the podcast that I had this past uh, this past week. So. Um, or on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, uh, and because I was talking to, with my buddy Justin Czar from bowhunting.com, mm-hmm. and he's got three kids now, and his kid was born October 28th, so he kind of had a different type of rut. At least my kid will be quote unquote established at that point. Okay, so tell me this. Well, well first off, when's the, due, the approximate due date? Uh, based off of the first doctor's visit, the due date is October. Or September 28th. Okay. So here's my question. What yes. do you think is better for the due date to be, or for the baby to be born at that point, you know, sometime in September, mm-hmm. but then you're going to have like a, a four-week-old or a six-week-old or a seven- or eight-week-old during the heat of the hunting season, October and the rut. Right. You know, when it comes to the rut, you're going to have a six-week-old or whatever it's going to be. Um, yep. That sounds tough. So is that is that better or worse than having no baby in October, but then having it born, you know, like November 10th or something, um, right during the rut. Oh What's, man. What do you think? Well, I think that after the baby comes, I might be able to, you know, sneak away to the main farm. Now, if the baby hadn't come yet and it was getting close, I would feel obligated to stick around closer to home. Right. Gotcha. Still go, still go out and hunt, but, but not, you know, make it down to the main farm. Once the baby's already here, you know, I can have grandma come up or I can have somebody come up. Now, the only the thing that I'm kind of playing around with is the very first week in September, I, ha- I had planned to go to Colorado for an elk hunt. Mm-hmm. And typically, if it's all good, the see, my my daughter went three days early uh, ahead of due date. And my son, I think he went six, five or six days early. Uh, instead of a due date. So if for some reason the kid, like, I don't think the kid's going to come 15 or, uh, you know, 15 days early. So I think I'm still going to be able to squeeze this do this elk trip in. The only problem is, you know, my wife's going to be 30, 33 weeks pregnant, 34 weeks pregnant, uh, when I'm out elk hunting. So, yeah. wow. So, <laughs> Here's a question for you because you own your own business and I'm starting to get some, you know, some sponsorship dollars coming in for the nine finger chronicles. Do I take some of that money and buy a date, like a babysitter to come to the house (laughs) at that time so I can actually get out and hunt? And is, do you think that is a tax write off? (laughs) I think that is the best investment you can make right now, Dan. I know. You need, you can't, we can't, we can't have a November 13th. November third end of season date again. We've mm-hmm. gotta we gotta pay for the babysitter, get right. out there and hunt and do this stuff because, yeah, I think that's smart. Yeah. Write that write that stuff off. Do it. Right. I'm gonna try. <laughs> I'm gonna try. Do you have an accountant yet? Uh, I don't. Uh, my t- accountant is usually me, and you know it's it's like that little uh, that little voice in your head, it's like, yes, you should buy another pair of hunting boots or yes, <laughs> you definitely need more Sitka gear or whatever. So it sounds like a very wise advisor. Good, you're in good, right, happier right. in good hands. <laughs> he's belligerent. He's belligerently drunk most of the time. <laughs> well, you might want to look at getting a real accountant. <laughs> 
because things get a little bit complicated as right. as your business uh, grows. Right, right. Oh, I'm rolling man. the dice right now. All right, well, I, I, that sounds right on par with with basic Dan Johnson 101. So that's right. So here's a question, Dan. Um, what the listeners don't know, but you and I know, is that you actually aren't able to join us on the interview with PJ because that interview actually happened yesterday and you couldn't go because your power went out. Right. 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 So, so the conversation that I have with PJ is about hunting deer in the Northeast. Right. I want to know since you didn't get to listen to that, what do you think or what kind of advice do you have for hunting deer in the Northeast, Dan? (laughs) <laughs> like north northeast Iowa well, or like Maine. This is like northeast US, but you you right. feel free to spin it however you want. Well, I tell you, if I'm going to give advice on a place I've never hunted before, I'm going to make an assumption that there are also a lot of people, a higher population of people, which means more pressure, which means the hunter should probably um not go into their properties um, as much, if you run trail cameras, let your trail cameras do the scouting for you and, um, pick the best possible days to, to be aggressive with, you know, if, and if you have the opportunity to do a run and gun, do a run and gun in first time in best time in type scenario. That's pretty good, Dan. That's pretty good. So that's a, that's an assumption. Now I'm, you know, there's a lot of guys out there right now probably going, Dan is a dipshit, and I will never take advice from him. So, <laughs> so, whatever. Well, uh, just, <laughs> whatever. I've talked to some guys. I've talked to some guys out who who hunt out there, and it's cool. It's it's just straight different because um, I talked to a guy uh, who hunts in Maryland, and he hunts in basically a housing development. In his his biggest piece of property is three acres. Yeah. Everything else is smaller. Isn't that crazy? Right. I interestingly, I killed my first buck ever with a bow, and I've told the story years ago, but the first deer I ever killed was on a a three-and-a-half-acre property. So Right. So there you go. That was was my experience in the very beginning, too. So, um, Dan, one final thing. We're really going long with this intro, but... That's all right. (laughs) We we talked on your podcast. I think it was last week. And yep. speaking of this whole topic that we're talking about right now, on that podcast, you said that if ever you're able to quit your day job and go full-time right. with the Nine Finger Chronicles, then you will come and hunt Michigan and experience yep. this type of, of world that we have in Michigan and Pennsylvania and New York and other states like that. So can you just reaffirm that here to the Wired Hunt audience? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to look for for this uh this awesome ranch it's called the Kenyan ranch it's up in uh I'm after this one buck called Holyfield yeah. uh not sure if he's alive yet but no yeah dude if I like I, I guarantee it I'll 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 put the Dan Johnson name on it if that holds anything <laughs> that's probably like child child paste for arts and crafts but um if I ever am able to quit my job and you know go nine finger chronicles full time i will come and do some form of a hunt in michigan you heard it right there folks dan is going to leave iowa 
and come to Michigan. So, uh, so support the Nine Finger Chronicles, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's All right. right. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, so it's just like, yeah, let's cheer for Dan just so we can feed him, <laughs> you know, just just so we can put him in a bad situation. That's that's exactly what I want. So, <laughs> well, I I would love to do that. It'd be fun. So, hey, I got a question for you. Here, last question. All right. I'm sorry. No, you're good. What What would happen if you're like Dan? You can come and hunt on my property and Holyfield stepped out. What would happen? Well, two, two things. Number one, I wouldn't let you. <laughs> number two, <laughs> and number two, I'm going to kill Holyfield next year so he won't be around when you get here. No, oh, amen. So that's there you go. <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> right. right. Probably unlikely. Oh man, I uh, I'm actually working on my film right now, kind of telling the story of Holyfield this year, this past year, and mm-hmm. um, and I'm excited about that. And uh, and speaking of. Speaking of that, we need to take a break now to pause for our sickest story, and then um, we're going to get rid of Dan, and we're going to bring in PJ then after that, and we'll get this show on the road. So, like I just said, you know, I'm working on this Holyfield film, and I thought for today's sickest story, I could actually share a story of my own, and a little bit of a preview of that film here to come in the next few weeks, hopefully. So, My Sitka story today is an interview that I recorded just after my first close call with Holyfield during this past season. Holy smokes. That was a crazy, crazy night. As you might have seen, the last footage I had was Holyfield walking into the food plot. I snore reasoned him in. He came into the food plot. And then he started pushing a dough across it. I'm still shaking. Ah, he started pushing dough across it. He ran across my shooting lanes, stopped behind a bunch of branches, and then I thought we were going to come out. I started to sit, so I started to slowly sit down in my chair, and when I sat, it creaked. So he was froze there for a while. And then he walked right out just fine. But, uh... I drew back on him and it was just too dark. It was right last light. I just could not see my pins and he was too far out. He was probably 40 yards. If he was a 20, I maybe could have taken the shot, but at 40, I just, I couldn't do it. So, um, crazy night. I saw like five different mature bucks. I saw Holyfield. Not only did I see him when I drew back on him, but then he went back in the field chasing does and disappeared for a long time. And then I sat waiting. And then he came back in like 20 minutes later after dark. I hadn't gotten out of the tree yet, and I saw deer come back in the food plot. Here he is at 20 yards. I can see him in my binoculars, but... Wow. Uh, I saw Holyfield. I saw that big nine that I'm calling Frazier, and three other nice bucks. I'm not sure which ones they were. I think one was Mayweather. Um, Just a crazy night. Crazy, crazy night. It was indeed a crazy, crazy night, and that was... A Sitka story. In fact, on that hunt, I was wearing a Sitka Fanatic hoodie and jacket and the Stratus pants. So if you would like to learn more about Sitka gear for yourself, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now we will get back to the show and our conversation with PJ Riley. All right, with us now on the line is PJ Riley. Welcome to the show, PJ. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing really well. And uh, and thank you for joining us. What about you? How, sure. How's your day going? Uh, not too bad today. We're, we had uh, nasty weather last week, and now it looks like uh, it's like 60-some degrees here. I'm in Pennsylvania, 
70s tomorrow, and then it's supposed to drop. And last week that made like tornadoes in the area. So tomorrow oh. shouldn't be a very good day. <laughs> how, how crazy has this weather been this winter? Uh, just insane. And me personally, I'm a winter person, so I feel like I'm kind of <laughs> cheated because I don't expect in August I'll get any 40 degree days. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. My my issue with it is that I feel like we're getting these like false expectations. Like we're getting these 60 yeah. degree days, and it's gotten me excited for spring now. But I know, like you said, that cold weather is going to come back in, and it's going to stomp all my hopes and dreams out. So. I think it's, I mean, it's supposed to be 70 tomorrow, and I think we're supposed to get snow on Friday. So there Jeez. you go. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy, PJ. So, uh, so PJ, I have been reading your articles for a long time now. Um, but for those, for those who aren't familiar with what you do, can you just tell us a little bit about what it is you do now and maybe a little bit about sure. you know, your background in hunting and how you got to this point? Sure. So um, I full-time, I am a technical writer for Lancaster Archery Supply. Um, we are the uh, world's largest dealer of uh, target bow hunting and 3D archery. Um, if it has to do with archery, we sell it. Uh, and we're, you know, everybody here is fanatical about archery. Um, we're into tournaments, we're into bow hunting, we're into it all. Um, and so I work um, mainly on the company's website, our social media pages. Um, I do a blog um, for the site, you know, about anything and everything archery. Um, so that's what I do full time. Uh, and then also, in addition to that, um, I've been um, uh, a magazine writer for, I don't know, 20, 20 some years for uh, I'm currently the bow hunting editor for Buckmasters magazine. I write for Bow Hunter, Peterson's Bow Hunting, Sports Afield, North American Whitetail, yada yada. There's a whole host of things that uh, uh, I do that for, and so that's that's what I do. I'm, I'm like you. I'm kind of immersed in it uh, each and every day, um, and it's just something that uh, uh, I always wanted to do. Um, I'm kind of a self-taught hunter. I didn't come from a hunting family. Uh, so once I got out of college, I sort of found my way and being, you know, as we'll get into it, being where I live, if you want to hunt deer, you kind of have to be a bow hunter. That's just because of the density of the population here. That's your best bet for, if you want to get permission to hunt private property, you got to be a bow hunter. So, Um, that's kind of how I got to where I am. <laughs> what, what was that? What was that process like? Learn teaching yourself to hunt. You know, twenty years old, oh, however old that was. I mean, how did you manage was, that? It was fun. Let me tell you, my first <laughs> in, in you know training to learn how to hunt, I started out doing three D shoots. I remember vividly going to my first 3D shoot with 12 arrows, and I came home with none. So <laughs> yeah. that is kind of how things went. And, and you know, from the same thing within the woods. I mean, I'd go out in the woods kind of with my bow, and I'm kind of like, well, now what do I do? You know, and just kind of walking around. Didn't know about tree stands. Um, so it was a it was a long process, but... I, I enjoyed it. You know, eventually then I started making friends and they started showing me things. And um, so that's kind of how it progressed from there. Do, do you remember? And now I'm addicted. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of us can relate to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask, do you remember uh, your first deer? I'm, I'm sure you do. Oh, absolutely. Can you tell us yes. about that? 
yes, it was a button buck, and I shot it with my bow. My very first deer was a bow kill. And I remember distinctly way back, this is uh, 1990, I think, the back then the lighted sight pins that they had were actually uh, it, it was a fiber optic so it kind of shined back at you not mm-hmm. not like today where the pins were illuminated so it was getting failing light i turned on this pin and it was like a spotlight right in my eye so i couldn't <laughs> see very well and i remember you know i shouldn't have done it but i remember my pin just getting close and i just cut loose and had had no idea where I was aiming and fortunately it hit the right spot <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sounds a lot like my first kill too <laughs> That's exa- probably a lot of yeah. people oh yeah you know you don't because that first one you don't really know what to expect yeah um if you've never done it before it's it's all foreign yeah uh, it's amazing what you learn then you know about deer body language and you know okay shoot no shoot situations but uh yeah early on it can be rough yeah that's the truth <laughs> you know something that um we we talk a lot about we've talked a lot about on past episodes myself and and Dan my co-host who's usually with us is is that that moment there at the very end where you are dealing with that moment of truth and we, we kind of go through this debate between the two of us sometimes where the people that are really good at handling the moment of truth and handling buck fever is that like a are you you born with that are you just a stone cold ice in the veins type who can handle that or is it one of those things that just comes with experience what from your perspective is it and what have you seen in your case for, for me and being primarily a bow hunter what i always noticed what i noticed after a while is before i mean that first one was crazy but I had been shooting competition archery for two years before I got to that point. So I could shoot a bow. And after that, what I remembered was because I was so familiar with shooting a bow, when it came to that moment, I would kind of like blank out, just go on autopilot. I would, it would just muscle memory would take over. I would do what right. I needed to do. And boom, I, you know, next thing I know, I'd be like, oh, that was a good shot. <laughs> Um, but I, I, you know, but then as soon as it was passed, boy, you know, the knees start shaking and the heart starts thumping. But when it came time to shoot and still, you know, when it comes time to shoot, it just, things just happen on their own. Yeah. And more often than, than not, fortunately, they turn out the best. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't always happen that way, but you know, usually more often than not that happens. Yeah. I can, I can a hundred percent relate. I, I, I too you'll fall into that autopilot. But for me, I've actually been able to transition from early on in my hunting, bow hunting career, I would go into autopilot, but it would be autopilot in a bad way in that, you know, it would just, it would just happen. And I wasn't able to be settled in or take my time. So I'd rush a lot of shots. Um, but I've been, I've been able to progress now where, you know, like you said, mistakes still happen, but for the most part, I'm in that kind of business mode autopilot mode but it it, now the process is smooth and and i don't need to think about it and you know knock on wood it's it's been going pretty well but it is interesting how that kind of comes from experience and practice and and all that well one of the things that i've found here lately is for the last several years i you know i like many hunters i went through the progression to where shooting a lot of deer was what was important um, and so I would get lots of doe tags, I'd hunt multiple states, shoot every, you know, everything I could. Um, 
But then the last several years, I kind of I've switched back to where now I'm hunting mature bucks. And one thing I found is I actually got out of that um, that killer mode, if you will, um, to where because I'm not shooting a lot of deer regularly, I've had some problems the last couple of years. I've had some hits that were bad that I thought, man, I should have I should have nailed that deer. Um, and then after it happened a couple of times, I was like, you know what? It's because I'm not shooting as many deer as I mm-hmm. used to, so I'm not familiar with the situation. So there's, I actually I did an article last year about that. I was like, hey, you know, 3Ds are great for practice, but it's not the same thing. Shooting a live deer is a unique experience, and the only way to get good at it is to do it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so was there any other adjustments you made, or was it just going back to shooting no. more does and that kind of thing just to keep but, that – going that was it yeah that was it it just um i I just had a couple where i was like man i i that should have been a gimme i mean that should have been you know inside inside 30 yards nothing in between me and the deer that should have been a gimme and somehow i screwed it up so i thought i was rushing you know i'm not taking my time i gotta fix that so yeah um yeah, I'm gonna go back to shooting more deer. <laughs> yeah, Spe- speaking of the other type of shooting you do, you mentioned you were doing a lot of 3D shooting and some tournament stuff. Uh, how yeah. how has that helped you as a, as a bow hunter? And is that something that that you know more more people should consider getting involved in? Yes, <clears throat> totally. And and actually, I, I've been working on a series of articles about this to where the very most basic thing. I would say is the more you shoot your bow, the better. I mean, whatever you shoot it at, shooting your bow is better than not shooting your bow. It's just, there's so many things that happen with muscles that just are better if you are shooting a lot. Um, Then kind of fine tuning that if you only shoot 3Ds or uh, paper animals or something where you're not aiming at a dot, what I've noticed is you'll your form won't be as solid but you won't know it only through shooting you know if you mix in dots as well uh shooting bullseyes you'll you'll know if you're not holding steady right away you'll notice but if you're aiming at the vitals of the deer you figure that's about the size of a pie plate there's a lot of margin for error in there inside that pie plate versus if you're shooting you know a typical uh vegas type uh target your ten ring is about the size of a silver dollar. You're going to know if your hand is kind of wandering. So mixing those two together, you know, with the target archery, you learn precision aiming. You learn um, to fix your form flaws because if you have form flaws, they're going to stand out. Um, so and then going over, of course, you don't want to be dependent on an aiming dot when you're hunting deer. You may not have one. You may just have to aim at a patch of brown. So shooting at 3D, then with the two together, you can really uh, fine-tune to make yourself, you know, the best bow hunter you can be. Yeah. Uh, you know, continuing on this topic, now that we're talking about this, is there, are there any other, in addition to what you just mentioned there, you know, switching up between 3D and, you know, specific targets and stuff, are there any other yeah. things you suggest to people at this time of year, this off-season, you know, winter, early spring time period that people should be considering to, you know, um, implement within their kind of practice regimen? Anything different or exercises or anything that have helped you? Uh, 
yeah, obviously, you know, any cardiovascular, any muscular training you can do, all of that helps. Um, but none of it helps like shooting your bow. I'm always amazed. We'll have, uh, you know, I'll be working in our shop and there'll be a big, huge guy come in. You know, he's obviously he can probably bench press 300 pounds. You know, he's a super strong guy. I'll hand him my 70 pound bow and he can't pull it back. It's not that he's not strong enough. It's that he doesn't have the coordination, Mm -hmm. which that's what you get through just, like I said, just shooting that bow over and over and over again. You develop that coordination. So, um, you know, the training, uh, cardiovascular, um, that's always good because that helps, you know, anytime you're bow hunting, hiking back in. And, of course, muscle training, that's going to make it easier for you to hold your bow, et cetera. But wintertime, boy, that's a great time to shoot indoor leagues. Just shoot a lot. <laughs> yeah, just lots of arrows and build that muscle memory, right? Exactly, exactly. It's nice with this uh, these warmer days. I've been able to get outside and do some shooting when usually yeah. I'd just be you know, in the barn or something. It's nice to be catching some, some sun rays, and uh, that's not too, not too common in February. Yeah, for sure. And and one of the things that we like to do, you know, with, with training for archery is shooting distance. You know, I may not um, shoot a deer at 70 or 80 yards, but I'll shoot targets at that distance all day long just because it makes you better at 30 and 40 yards. Yeah. Um, you Any twitch of your hand at 80 yards and that arrow is going to be several inches off target. So it just really fine tunes your form so yeah we like getting outside so we can shoot distance yeah how, we're going down a wormhole here but um oh but yeah sorry you've got <laughs> this is this is my fault PJ, because i'm interested in this stuff um i want to talk about deer but i want to yeah i want to understand a few things too with this since you've got so sure. much expertise you know okay let, let's say you're you're shooting at 70 or 80 yards because you're trying to yeah. really fine tune things how do you start self-diagnosing what the issue is? So let's say whether it's at 70 or it's at 30 or whatever, you start seeing that you're, you're off. How do you begin the process sure. of self-diagnosis? Self-diagnosis is probably pretty difficult. What, what I would say that you should diagnose is that you have a problem. You may not know what that problem is, but if you just can't be consistent, know that and tell yourself, hey, I got a problem here. And then go to your shop and have somebody watch you shoot. Nine times, I'll say 99 times out of 100 even, what we see uh, at Lancaster Archery is issues with people, how they hold the bow. That's hands down the most common issue we see. That bow grip looks like something you should grab like a pistol. But if you hold it like that, you're going to have problems, Mm -hmm. especially at distance because you're going to torque the bow, and at 70 yards, you're going to see that. So just if you're shooting 70 yards and you just can't hold a tight group, 70 yards, it's not, you know, eventually you should be able to have all your arrows, you know, in in a circle the size of a coffee cup. That's, you know, even though it's 70 yards, that's not unheard of. Today's bows, they're perfectly capable of doing that. If you find that your group just isn't getting any smaller, Tell yourself, hey, I got a problem, and then go find an expert who can help you figure out what that problem is. It could be something with equipment. You know, you never, um, if you're shooting an uh, arrow that's too weak of a spine, at 20 yards, you're not going to notice. That's not going to be a problem. 
you start backing up, now that's going to be an issue. Um, so it, it could be many things, but um, somebody at your local pro shop, they can help you figure that out. Yeah, that's good advice. And it takes, um, and I got to say, I am guilty of just always pushing off the trip to the pro shop because I don't want to make the drive or I don't want to deal with waiting around and stuff like that. But it's such a, you know, it's, it's a good idea to get in there and talk to people that have experience in this kind of stuff, because to your point, for sure, it's really tough to figure out that kind of thing out on your own. You know, it is. And there's a, and fortunately, and that's one of the reason, uh, Rob Caulfield, he's our owner. That's one of the reasons that he hired me and he hired a, uh, we now have a full-time cameraman too, was just to get information out there because unfortunately there is a lot of bad information. Just within the last six months, I won't say who, but I saw a well-known figure um, do a video where she was saying that the way you grip your bow doesn't matter, that you hold it any way you want and, you know, that's <laughs> the way to do it. And I thought, wow. man, if she would talk to a coach, I guarantee you there's there's a reason Levi Morgan, Jesse Broadwater – and all the top archers, if you look at their hand position, it's all the same. That's not by accident. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a right way to hold it, and there's a wrong way. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But if you get to your pro shop, I guarantee you, there you know somebody there is going to know the right information. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good reminder for all of us. I I actually need to go to the pro shop to get my peep set moved on a new bow, so I need to make that trip too. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> that will help. Yes, yes, it definitely will. Um, so, so let, let's shift. Let's shift gears here a little, PJ. Deer. Let's yeah. talk deer. Um, sure. And you have this unique perspective of of hunting and living in Pennsylvania and some experience in the Northeast. And that's something we haven't actually got to talk about as much as we probably should have here on the podcast. I'm not. I don't know if I would say the a unique perspective or some kind of curse that I was born here. Or... <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it feels like that. I think we're, uh, I, I can feel your pain there a little bit because I like to, I like to milk the curse of hunting and living in Michigan. So, um, oh, I think in Pennsylvania, yes, you. Yes. there's some similarities there, but you um... definitely feel my pain. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about that pain though, PJ, what, where all have you hunted in the Northeast? And can you just kind of give us a high level overview for those that don't hunt in that part sure. of the country, what what's unique about it? What's you know what's that like? Um, I've hunted obviously Pennsylvania my whole life. Um, I've hunted uh, New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Maryland, West Virginia, um, pretty much everything right around Pennsylvania, um, and <clears throat> here in the Northeast. And basically, the the two main issues are the um, hunter density, well, in Pennsylvania in particular, hunter density, then just density of people who live here. And then the third thing I would say is the relative size of properties. Here in Pennsylvania, I personally don't know anyone who has access to 1,000 acres of private property, you know, contiguous land. They, I mean, such places exist here, but they're pretty rare. Right. Where where I live, um, if there's a farm, it's usually under a hundred acres. So, you know, I may have access to my seventy acres, you know, of my farm. 
Well, then there's another guy uh, right next door who has access to the next 40 acres. And then the next guy down the street, he's hunting that 30 acres, Um, you know, and all down. And actually right around my house, it's even less than that. It's, you know, I got six acres here. The neighbor's got 11. Another guy's got five. So that's that's a totally different perspective than someone who has the run of 400, 500, 600 acres. Um, there's only so many there's only so many trees you can put a stand in on six acres. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, that's um, that's something I can definitely relate to here in Michigan too. It, yeah, so it's just a different it, it's a different experience. I think you have to have different expectations. Certainly, I mean, I I go to Illinois every year. I've been hunting there for I don't know 15 years every year, and it's it's different. Um, uh, it, just because you're so confined here, it's it's just a different thing. And and <clears throat> one of the um, misconceptions can be: I live in a very suburban area, and a lot of people think, "Oh, that's great hunting down there," you know, because access is so hard to get. It's hard to get if you're from the outside. That doesn't mean nobody's hunting there, because I can tell you pretty much around me. If a place can be hunted, someone is hunting it. Yeah. Um, that's the Pennsylvania. I'm sure that's the same in Michigan. Mm-hmm. One of the good things about hunting in Pennsylvania is it's an accepted way of life. I think more so we don't see a whole lot of the anti-hunting. Um, you just don't run into that that much. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned just a second ago, being expectations. And if sure. you are, if you're someone who hunts in Pennsylvania or Michigan or New York or, you know, Virginia or some of these other states that aren't necessarily like the the Midwest top tier whitetail states that we see on TV or, or see in the magazines and everything, why why do you think setting why are expectations important to that type of hunter? And then can you can you help us understand you know what we should be thinking about when trying to set proper expectations in a situation like that? Sure. If if you if you go to, if I go to Kansas, 150 inch deer is a very real possibility. Here in Pennsylvania, I've been hunting here since 1990. What's that? 20. I'm in my 27th year. I don't know that I've ever. I think I've maybe ever seen one deer of that size ever. I've never shot one like that. A friend of mine killed it. Um, so it's. It's not. It's not that it's not realistic for me to expect that. Well, it is re- unrealistic for me to expect that. But if that's my goal and I don't achieve it, I can't really be upset because the odds of that here are pretty slim. But if I know that, well, then hey, that's okay. Um, but if you go out every year and you're like, oh man, I want to kill a 140, you can't really be upset when you don't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's just, it's, you know, just I'm, for the longest time before uh, Pennsylvania changed its deer management program in 2001, the biologist said, hey, Pennsylvania hunters kill on average 80 to 90 percent of the year and a half old deer every year. Wow. That, does, that doesn't leave a lot left to get to two and a half, then let alone three and a half, four and a half, five and a half. Yeah. Um, we've since moved that scale a little bit to now where 
we don't kill as many a year and a half. I think we're above 50% that they're at least two and a half or older, but the biologists will be the first to tell you they're pretty much now we're just killing two and a half year old deer. (laughs) (laughs) So that's still, you know, you're, that's a heck of a two and a half year old deer that gets to 150. That's a, that's a heck of a deer. That's going to be pretty rare. Yeah. So do you, do you set your expectations in Pennsylvania or I guess, how do you personally set your expectations? Is it based on you're trying to kill a certain size antler buck or is it age or do you just shoot whatever one makes you excited or how do you, how do you You, go through that process? You know what my thought is? My my thought is I don't want to shoot one that I can clearly see is one and a half or two and a half. You know, the, the small deer with the skinny neck, um, those deer kind of stand out. I don't want to shoot one of those. That's me personally. And then for antlers, it's, uh, you know, if it's definitely not in that age class, I'll shoot it. There's, there's a deer that's been living behind my house that is actually a giant six pointer. This thing has an enormous frame and I can tell I've have several pictures of that deer. He's at least three and a half. Now this deer wouldn't score for anything. I would love to kill that deer. Yeah. He is just unique. Um, I just think he's an awesome deer. So that's kind of my expectations, and I and uh, those are I think those are realistic expectations. I don't kill a deer every year, but you know I do pass up ones that are legal deer, um, and I'm okay with that. But that's that's fine with me. I don't, you know, I don't have to shoot. But, you know, I'm probably like a lot of hunters. My basement is full of the exact same eight-pointer. You know, 14-, 15-inch eight-pointer, 112, 115 inches. I probably got 10, 15 of those. Yeah. Do I need to shoot another one? (laughs) (laughs) No. Personally, I, I don't. But that's me. You know, somebody else, I get it. They may have limited time. You know, they get out a couple days. They want to shoot the first legal buck. Good. Do it that's your business, knock yourself out. I I don't have any problem with that. Um, But like I said, for me, uh, you know, that's kind of how I set my goals going into a season. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So, so, okay, you mentioned two of the unique factors there in in a place like Pennsylvania are small properties and very high density of other hunters and people. So how do you tackle those two issues? How do you deal with the heavy hunting pressure? And how do you uniquely deal with small properties? How does that change your hunting strategy? Well, <clears throat> first off, I should say we do have, we are fortunate here to have a lot of public land in Pennsylvania. There is a lot. Just our state game commission, which is comparable to DNR and other states, just our state game commission owns, I think it's one and a half million acres. Wow. On top of that, we've got state forest. We've got the Allegheny National Forest, which it alone is 500 and some thousand acres. Um, so we've got probably, I think the last number I saw was it was pushing 3 million acres of public hunting land, which in a state the size of Pennsylvania, that's pretty significant because I think we're fourth in overall population in the country. So we're not a big state, but we got a lot of people. Um, so there is a lot of public land out there. Unfortunately, it hasn't always been um, managed in the best way. 
And so there are, you know, you'll have one tract of state game lands that might be 40, 50,000 acres, and boy, you can spend all day and have trouble finding one deer. Um, that's so, But that is an avenue. If you want to go back in, we've had many studies here that show the guy who's willing to really hoof it in and get more than a mile from the road, you can find, you can get away from the crowds. Will you find deer? Well, that's the next hurdle. But you can get away from the people on public lands. Um, where I live, I live down in the southeast, basically between Philadelphia and Harrisburg. Um, if people are familiar with that, that's where I live. We don't have a lot of public land, and the public land we do have really gets pounded. So I stay away from that. Um, my strategy is more trying to get on to smaller private properties, or we have um, we have some public land that allows limited access to um, certain uh, groups. You, you know, you have to pass tests and things like that. <clears throat> and with them being smaller properties, I just try to line up several of them. So, you know, maybe I have six acres I can hunt here, 10 acres over there, you know, 15 here. Um, that's kind of my strategy versus having one good place. I have several smaller places to hunt. That, that's kind of been my strategy. It's, it, we're very fortunate here. We have groups like the Natural Lands Trust that um, they come in, and fortunately they're eager to buy up places in Pennsylvania because they want to preserve it before it gets developed and they understand the value of hunting, so they allow hunting, and they run these hunting programs. You have to pass a test to get in. So I'm in two places like that, um, where it's it's public land, public hunting land. So the number of hunters is pretty limited, and and it's decent. Uh, it's it's not great, but it's pretty decent. Um, so that's kind of how that that's kind of the strategy I take. Um, I don't like to. I don't have a. My, my brother-in-law has a camp in the mountains, but I don't go up there much for deer hunting. Um, I just as soon hunt around home before work, after work, on weekends, that kind of thing. Yeah. So one of the things that that I that I think about when I'm hearing about your situation, you know, hunting a series of these small properties, um, at least for me and my hunting, you know in my hunting experiences, one of the things I'm always concerned about the most is being really careful about when I hunt a spot to keep that pressure low and, you know, trying Absolutely. to make sure, yeah, and trying to make sure I'm not going in there too much or things like that. And, and that's, yeah. and that's a consideration, you know, even when I'm hunting, you know, 80 or 90 acre pieces, let alone a sure. six acre piece. So how do you, how does that factor, how does hunting pressure, your hunting pressure factor into how and when you hunt these little pieces? I, I kind of call that taking the temperature, <laughs> taking the temperature of the property. You, um, because they are these small properties, uh, you know, a deer we know has average home range of about a mile. Well, how am I going to catch him when he's on that six acres I can hunt? You, and from what I've seen over the years is deer kind of have a cyclical pattern and you kind of have to stay on top of what's happening on your properties to know when they're going to be there, to hit it right. You know, you can do that with trail cameras, um, maybe hunting it, you know, one morning, uh, one day a week, 
hunting, a, you know, or hunt a morning on Monday and hunt an evening on Friday. I, I found by doing that, I can usually then figure out, okay, I need to be here at this time. <clears throat> Between that and my cameras. Um, but yeah, you're right, because I have seen, you know, obviously I learned through trial and error. I'd go in and hunt the same stand day after day after day, and then the deer sightings would just dwindle, 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 and then I wasn't seeing anything. Um, it was pretty clear what was happening because I couldn't move, the deer moved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty simple science there. It doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But, yeah, um, yeah that, that's kind of how I go about it. And to be honest, th- there will be periods like um, – the second week, second and third week of October, I don't think I've ever killed a deer in Pennsylvania. Um, so because of that, I don't invest too much time then. I mean, I, I understand anything's possible. The deer of a lifetime could walk by then, but my history has shown those aren't the best times. I'm not going to put a lot of effort then. First week, and then once you start getting around thing, or uh, Halloween, uh, and then on into November. Then I'm going to start putting more effort in. Yeah, yeah. I've I've found a similar thing to be true too for me when in you know for that same basic reason, trying to keep pressure low. I'll hunt early the season, yeah. first few days in the season, that first week, and then lay yep. off it, and then wait till that pre rut type of activity starts, and then you know exactly the odds of that movement rate rises up, and so <laughs> it's worth the risk of going in there and putting pressure on those deer because the opportunity is so much greater. Yeah, and, and interestingly, uh, I, I moved to a new place two years ago. So this year was my second season um, living where I am, and I can hunt right around my house. And one of the unique things I noticed is, for whatever reason, the best rut activity around there is November 16th to the 22nd. Two years in a row, the exact same thing happened. I was out in Illinois hunting, and my wife's at home, and she's telling me, PJ, there's these big bucks running around the woods out here <laughs> like crazy, you know, all day. Of course. And I'm gone. And, you know, I was hunting, you know, figuring, oh, first week in November, that's awesome. I'm sitting in my tree stand seeing nothing but does and little bucks. I'm like, what the heck's going on? Well, you know, I've read up about this that um, the deer on a local basis – will have their sweet spot for activity like that. You know, they tell you the rut. Oh, it's from, you know, Halloween into the third week of November. That's, and and there's a bell curve is, is what I've seen a picture of. Mm-hmm. Well, your individual location, the peak of that bell curve can move. It can be, you know, 16th to the 22nd where I am. And 10 miles away, it can be the 4th to the 8th, you know, um, it, I know there was another property I hunted for a long time, and I knew that if I was in my tree stand November 7, 8, 9, something was going to happen. Th- those were the days on that property. Um, so just uh, experience, cameras, you know, observations, things like that, that's what you learn over time. Yeah. It's interesting how there are those local variances that, uh, that to your point, I think every place is a little bit different, and, and that experience, yeah. you start to pick up on that. Um, sure. So speaking back to um, 
kind of the different observations you're able to make on these properties. You mentioned using trail cameras um, and hunting yeah. and, and observing. Can you elaborate a little bit on on how you scout these properties, both the details of what you're doing with trail cameras and any on-the-ground scouting you do, off-season, in-season, anything like that? One of the uh, One of the good things, I guess, about hunting the small properties, like I said, is there's only so many places you can be. Um, and it's usually, okay, if I only got six acres to work with, finding the main deer path is really all I can do. It may not be the best place in the area, but it's all I have access to. Um, so, you know, I, I will find these trails, <clears throat> hunt them a few times, you know, uh, and you can see what the deer are doing, just paying attention to when they move and where they move, you can fine-tune your adjustments like that. Then for trail cameras, what I like is to just pick up on daytime deer movement. Um, I don't have to see them, you know, from my stand. If, If I'm getting consistent daylight pictures of bucks, okay, now I know, all right, I need to be out there. You know, will the will a deer that I want come by? Who knows? But I can tell now. Okay, this is the time. And like I said, both times or the last two years, I have several mature bucks on my cameras in that time period, November sixteenth to twenty-two. One of them <laughs> this year. It was my first day. I had been in Illinois for eight days. My first day back, of course, I had to go to work. It was a Monday. But at 3.30, this giant eight-pointer walked about 30 yards from my house past my camera. He was chasing a doe. <laughs> I thought, and I was at work, so I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. That's brutal. <laughs> and I had never seen that deer before. He hung around for three days. I never saw him again. Isn't that crazy? So, you know, it's just a, a deer that I'm sure a hot doe brought in and, then he was gone. <laughs> you know, an interesting thing that uh, that a number of people have shared with with us here in the last year or two is that um, some people, and you've probably maybe seen some people talk about this um, in some of the magazines you've written for too, where they're talking about some of these kind of annual patterns where a buck like that that maybe goes on a three or four day yes. little trip might tend to do the same yep. thing every year at the same time. Um, sure. I wonder if that's something that might be happening there too in your situation. I could totally see that, you know, um, there's, um, during the summer, uh, there was a, uh, 10 pointer that I knew was only two and a half years old. He was just a young deer, but boy, he had a beautiful 10 point rack. I was probably, I'm going to say he was probably about 125 inches. And I was like, Oh man, I hope that deer lives. You know, I knew, Hey, I'm not going to shoot that deer, but man, he's an awesome deer. I had pictures of this deer every day um in july and august and then one day he just he disappeared and i never got another picture of him again until december 20th (laughs) i I was sure he was dead you know somebody killed him he hung around for one day gone never saw him again until two weeks ago you know so what what is that deer doing Who, who knows but i mean to be so stuck to a pattern day after day after day after day my wife would see him you know in the field at night when she would come home and sure enough once it got dark he would come through our woods he'd be on the camera 
how how can he be so stuck to that pattern and then completely disappear <laughs> for what three four months? I don't know, but you know, I, so clearly they have things that they do, and so I can totally see where a buck would come in. Hey, it's November fifteenth. Time to go through this piece of wood. <laughs> yeah, it's it's mis- mysterious and fascinating all at once. That's for sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, back to back to this time period we're talking about the the rut this November time period. Um, mm-hmm. h- how is hunting in the Northeast different during the rut compared to some of these other places you've been? I mean, I think a lot of times when we talk about hunting the rut in popular media, mm-hmm. when you're reading about the Midwest, everyone's crashing antlers together and they're hunting little yep. little pinch points between crop fields and stuff. Is is that stuff yeah. working for you in Pennsylvania, or is it very different at that time? I, me personally, I have never had luck rattling antlers in Pennsylvania. Any time I have tried it and had deer within sight, it scares the heck out of me. (laughs) That's, that's been my experience. I don't know what's happening that does that. If there's, well, I have an idea. I've sat in my tree stand enough and heard the neighbors calling, you know, where my goal with calling is I want whatever I'm doing to be absolutely like barely audible. <laughs> I, I don't want to make, I can't get any of my calling quiet enough for my taste, but then to sit there and hear a guy that I know is 250 yards away and I can hear his grunts as clear as day, uh, you know, deer are hearing that as well. And so I personally, I believe that has an effect. I don't think, I I think your calling has to be completely different. You know, then when I go to Illinois, heck yeah, I'll I'll bang antlers together. My grunts will be loud. I'll use the can, doe calls, all that. Pennsylvania, I might do one quiet grunt, you know, just something that's as quiet as can be. Um, that's what I have found to work. And I actually have called in several deer over the years, but it's always been subtlety is my, is my main thing, which, you know, now we have all these calls coming out, the growler, the hyper growl calls that are very loud and aggressive. It's actually hard for me to find one that's quiet enough. (laughs) Um, uh, so, and I've been in the woods and heard deer come through. And it's very subtle. I've never heard a loud grunt in PA. If I hear it, usually I'm like, what was that? Was that a tree creaking? What? Right. I mean, that sure <laughs> sounded like a grunt. And then you look over and you see the deer, and boy, it's just real quiet. Man, man. Yeah. Um, it, it's just not that aggressive stuff you'll hear out west. Right. Or Midwest. Yeah. So, so what's the situation? Mm-hmm. What's the situation in Pennsylvania, um, or the type of situation where you have been able to use one of those soft grunts to get a deer in? Is that uh, a situation where there's deer close and you just need him to come into range just a little more, or, or what's that specific circumstance where it might work in that area? There's two things I like to do. One of the things I like to do because I am anchored to small properties is I like to do a lot of blind calling. I'm I'm within calling distance of other people's properties, even doing it quietly. Um, you know, if I'm on a three-acre piece, the neighbor's property is 50 yards away. <laughs> so I do like to do a lot of blind calling where I am just a little bit louder. 
Um, but in those situations, I'm very short. I might do uh, three grunts, you know, moderate volume, definitely not loud, um, three grunts, and then I may do a doe call. And then that'll be it for at least 40 minutes. That's usually my time frame I go by. And you'll be surprised, you know, after 20 minutes, one will come in. Hmm. Um, the, the other scenario is, yes, where I see one. And then if I can see him, if I can see a buck, I don't care how far it is. You know, he could be, well, obviously if he's like 30 yards away, I'm not calling at him. But if he's outside, you know, 60 to 200 yards, I'm going to start out being absolutely as quiet as possible until I know he heard me. That's the only way I'll vary it. And then as soon as he hears me, I'm not calling again. Because I've seen even where, uh, you know, I'm sure lots of hunters have been there to where the, you get the deer's attention and they don't really show interest. The next time you call, that thing takes off for the next county. And it's even though they're not really paying attention to you, you know, they're, that's not the deer you're going to bring in. That deer's not in the right mood. Yeah. Um, if you get the one that's in the right mood, that first call, he's going to somehow start angling. Even if he's going to circle to get downwind, he's angling towards you and you'll, you know, you'll know it. Um, but interestingly, twice this has happened to me to where I've had a hot doe come through with a buck and the buck's grunting like crazy, crazy, crazy. And of course, my instinct reaction is to pick up the grunt call. And I've just learned through doing this a couple of times and two times it worked to perfection. I switched and started calling the doe. I just picked up my can call. And because they're in that, that heavy chase, uh, I found it doesn't matter that I'm doing it over and over and over and over again. Eventually that doe both times has worked her way right to the base of my tree. And I killed both of those bucks. Wow. And, I, you know, I think I, I saw one time um, where the, the doe came in. There was one hot doe with a herd, and that buck was doing everything he could to get that doe away from the herd. And all that doe wanted to do was get with the herd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just started doing doe calling, doe calling, doe calling. Eventually she came over and I killed the buck. So, I, you know, there's a... Obviously, there's a lot of situational uh, baseball there. Sure. Um, but in general, whatever I do, I'm trying to do it as quiet as possible. Yeah. In that in that specific instance, with the doe situation, um, were you just using a doe and estrus can call that kind of thing, or you were using like a yes. f- that was what you were doing? Okay. Nope. I had the I had the basic um, doe and heat primos can call, just turning it over and over. And, I mean, the, the two deer were making such a racket anyway, crashing through branches. They were running through the stream, the bucks grunting. I mean, it, it was loud even without me. And I, I just, you know, I don't – certainly at some points they're not hearing me. Um, but eventually the doe was like, ah, you know, hey, there's some relief over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, speaking uh, – one final question on the the calling topic – um, are you just using those types of calls in Pennsylvania during the rut or will you ever use that type of soft grunting type of thing in the early season or later in the year or anything? 
Yeah, I have a, um, there's one call I have, man, I've had it for about 15 years. I love it. It's this little, it's a real tiny short mouth call um, that I can move a uh, rubber band on. And so I can take a buck grunt and make it a little bit higher pitch so it's not quite as aggressive. And I've had luck with that in, you know, early October. Just, uh, you know, just be sitting there and just give a nice meh. And I've had bucks come into that. You know, I don't know if it's just a social thing or if it is some sort of pre-rut behavior. Um, but I have had bucks answer that in the early season. Interesting. So I'll, I'll use that anytime. But, again, like I said, it's not going to be that low-pitched, more aggressive grunt. It's going to be a little higher-pitched. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So we're, we're, we've been talking about all these different types of adaptations from your calling standpoint or how often you hunt a property, and it's all kind of because of hunting pressure, how that changes deer behavior yeah. and everything. Um, has that has that unique issue that you deal with there in Pennsylvania or in the Northeast, has that changed at all how you think about stand placement, you know, where you put your your tree stand or how high or what kind of stuff you do or think yeah. about when you set it up? It has. Um, Incidentally, when to, you just mentioned how high, I am a height freak. Nobody likes to hunt from my stand because they're <laughs> going to be at least 20 to 25 feet. I Basically, a lot of the woods I hunt are tulip poplar. It's just a great big, huge forest of telephone poles. It's hard, deer know to look up, and you stick out. And I've just found if I can get in the in the 20 to 25-foot range, that seems to be out of their normal line of sight, or at least where they're not expecting danger. Um, and I, I'm sure that's just from running into lots of people in tree stands. Yeah. Um, and in walking through the woods and finding other people's tree stands, I've noticed other people don't do that. So I figure if I'm doing something everybody else isn't, that's got to be better for me. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, because of that, I'm also a safety nut. You know, if I got a hang on stand, it's got a lifeline running down. If I'm using my climber, I'm attached from the ground up. So I don't want to be a statistic. So. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> is there is there anything else that you're doing just in general, whether it be in the Northeast or elsewhere, just to, you know, when it comes to those stands and how you're situating them or anything? Another thing is when in doubt, I just get into thick stuff. Um, I know that the kind of the common thinking is stay out of the thick stuff because that's the bedding area. <clears throat> Where I am, deer don't like the open woods those tulip poplar forests, if they're in them, they're moving through them with a purpose. Um, and I've just found if I can get into the thick stuff, that's where I'm going to find deer that are calm, more calm and settled down and doing more of their natural thing. Um, uh, and again, I'm sure that's because of pressure. Um, but, and even like as the season goes on, okay. Um, Late September, a big stand of tulip poppers, you got lots of green on the ground. That's not so bad. Come November, I, there's there's some stands where I don't even hunt in there because I know I'm never going to see a deer in there. Um, it's just too open. Um, so I think that's one of the other things, too, because of pressure, getting the thick stuff that, that never 
seems to be a bad idea. Yeah, you may dump them or you may bump them from a bedding area, but what you know, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll take that chance. You know, um, fortunately, one of the good things is there is a lot of thick stuff, so maybe I can come in to one side of a thicket when I know the deer at the other. There's actually a one place that I hunt where it took me four years. I knew the deer were in this thicket and it took me four years to figure out how to get in without chasing them all out. And then once I did, it was awesome. I, you know, I had a couple of years where I killed deer and then <laughs> unfortunately this, this being Pennsylvania, I'll never forget this. I shot a 10 pointer in there. I, I was dragging it out and um, I took my cart all the way out to my truck, put it on the back, and I went home. What I didn't see was there was a guy coming down the hill the other way. He saw me with that deer on his on my truck with the cart. He followed my tracks back to my tree stand. And next year when I went in to hang a stand, no one had ever had a tree stand in there. When I went in there, there was a tree stand 10 yards away from the one I usually put mine in. Oh, and he had taken two of my bright eyes off the tree and marked his tree. <laughs> now, he, he had permission. The reason I know all this happened is I then saw him and I said, hey, I said, uh, um, uh, you know, no, I, I said, sorry, you know, I'm in here. I, nobody ever had a tree stand in here besides me. And he told me, he said, oh, yeah. Last year, I saw you got that buck. It was a nice one. He said, so I followed your tracks. I figured this would be a good place for me to hunt. I mean, he straight out told me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, That's awesome. Well, but he had permission to be there. There's nothing I could do about it. Yeah. So I actually, I moved. I figured this isn't worth it, you know. I'll go find my own. I'll find another place. Yeah. What was <laughs> but it? that's typical. Yeah. What what was it that you were able to do to get in there? You know, you mentioned that you'd figured out a different way to get in so you could hunt it. What specifically was it yeah. that you changed? So the the obvious route, there was a trail going the the part of the problems was is there were two property lines that I couldn't cross. So it kind of forced me in through this one area and I kept going through there and I kept bumping deer and I thought, oh, man, this is killing me. So <clears throat> what happened was, is I went and found one of the landowners, posted the land solid and it took some convincing, but I told him, I was like, look, I'm not hunting your property. I just want to walk around through here. And he had his, his land bordered this stream. And so what I did was I just wanted to get in the stream and take that. And so that I could come actually from the backside of this tree I was hunting rather than the front. It was a little more open because the stream was there, et cetera. That's not where the deer were. They were on the other side. So that was how I finally figured out how to get in there. Um, but with all the posted signs the guy had, at, you know, for the first three years, I was intimidated. I thought, ah, he's just going to yell at me. I don't want to deal with him. <laughs> yeah. Finally, I saw him one day, and I said, hey, just by any chance. He's like, no, no hunting, no hunting. And I said, well, I don't want to hunt. Would you have a problem with me just cutting this slight corner here to get in the stream? And he said, well, I guess that's not a problem. And that's said, awesome. Oh, well, perfect. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing how access and, and tweaking your access in some ways can totally change how a place hunts. It's so important. 
Oh, it did. And, and see, the problem was, is the new guy who then moved in, he came in the obvious route. And right. So I knew he was just killing that spot. So yeah. I moved. <laughs> That's brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking of um, hunting the thick stuff like that. Um, and how that's kind of necessary where you're hunting to get on these deer and see them moving in daylight. That's one of those things, sure. though, when you, when you hear someone who is, is hunting in Illinois or Iowa, maybe a lot of guys might say, oh, stay out of your thick stuff, keep that right. as a sanctuary, just hunt outside of it. What, what other things like that that we hear recommended for hunting in the low-pressure big buck states in the Midwest, what other things they recommend do you find not to work in Pennsylvania that Northeastern guys need to ignore that advice and do something different? Um, one of the, actually one of the best is uh, getting in um, close to houses. Um, the deer know that that's a safe place to be, especially during gun season, they're going right for the houses. Um, so fortunately here in PA, we have a, um, there's a 150-yard safety zone around any house. Unless you get that homeowner's per- permission, then you can violate that 150 yards. But with a bow, it's only 50 yards. So that opens up a lot more places um, in close to houses, which if I'm going to Illinois, I'm getting as far away from any house I see um, you know, as I can. But here in the Northeast... Those, if you got a little woodlot tight to a house, that's where you're going to find your deer. Interesting. Um, so, so you just kind of have to kind of. Uh, that's that's always tricky. Um, I, I like to think I'm conscientious on the homeowner's behalf. I'm not. If I'm in that situation, I'm taking pretty much only a sure thing shot. I'm not launching arrows. It's you, you, I just don't want anything to go wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I'm very conscious about that. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had that uncomfortable situation where a deer you shot has, has ran through someone's yard or something like that? Knock on wood, I have not. <laughs> Fortunately, I, I have never had one. You hear the horror stories. I shot this deer and it ran right up into the backyard and fell over under the kid's swing set, something mm-hmm. like that. Knock on wood, I have not ever had to deal with that situation. <laughs> yeah, that would be tough. <laughs> my, uh, it's, yeah. One of my good buddies this past hunting season um, had a deer run into his yard and die leaning up against his garage um, with an arrow still in it. Um, Oh, man. Yeah, so that would... uh, Luckily, he was a hunter, and so he was understanding of that kind of thing, but uh, I imagine some people who who weren't so comfortable with seeing a dead deer might have been pretty uh, shocked by that. Yeah, I mean, you can just imagine, you know, what if the what if, you know, a 10-year-old kid happens to be looking out the window right then? It's just... That's tough. I mean, to be honest, I've had shot situations that I didn't take because I was afraid that was going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, if the deer is on that side of me, I I might not shoot it. Yeah. Um, so it may be a combination of luck and just I haven't put myself in that position. Right, right. I uh, I actually 
my very first deer, speaking of first deer as we were towards the beginning of our conversation, the very first deer I ever shot was with a bow, and it was on the little piece of property that my parents' house is on, which was a three and a quarter acre piece, and kind of in a, a neighborhood sort of deal. And I shot that deer, and when it ran off, and I was all excited and, and so pumped up, and I went upstairs or went up the hill um, to to get my dad afterwards. And unfortunately, instead of being excited about you know me having shot this deer, all my mom and dad were worried about was, oh geez, did did the deer run into the neighbor's oh, yard? No. What are we gonna, what are we gonna do? <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, it didn't, but it caused a little bit of stress there at the outset. <laughs> uh, yeah, that can make an impression, and uh, yeah. And I, it can be, I mean, there can be bad situations. I was with a friend who um, shot a deer with his shotgun and it ran, it was a nice buck and it ran into this property. We did everything. We went and found the landowner and he flat out told us, nope, if that deer is in there dead, he's staying in there dead. I mean, nothing, nothing we could do. That's in Pennsylvania, the landowner, um, has all the power they can just tell you uh, well sorry you're yeah. not going in there yeah it's the same in michigan and, and ohio and those are, i've had situations like that where i've been afraid that would happen and that's just the worst feeling yeah. ever is to 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 imagine it being right there and you can't and you can't go retrieve exactly. it exactly yeah i think i believe you know you can call the game warden and the game warden has a little more leeway but I, I, I'm not sure totally. That, first off, for us to get a game warden, um, that would take forever anyway, yeah. um, if they would come out at all, because there aren't many of them. But I still don't think even they can go in, because that's not a – I know they can go on property when they have probable cause for a crime, but that's not a crime. So, right. Um, hmm. uh, anyway. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, it is. Now, PJ, I want to I want to reverse kind of what we've been talking about here for a second. Um, we've talked sure. a lot about you know guys hunting in Pennsylvania or the Northeast and and what they need to do differently than what we hear about in the media. But what about mm-hmm. for someone who hunts in the Northeast, lives in the Northeast? That's all they've ever known, um, and now they're going to go out for their first trip to the Midwest. Um, I know you've oh, done man. that a lot. What what kind of oh, things man. would you recommend for that person? That's heaven for that person, first of all. <laughs> yeah. My first thing is, is hey, just sit back and enjoy it. Don't shoot the first one that runs up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it's, yeah, it's it's totally different. I mean, I still get a kick out of it that I'll go out there, you know, I'll sit all season in PA and maybe see three bucks, and then I'll go to Illinois and see ten in my first sitting. Yeah. Um, so it, it's... Yeah, it, it's it's a different. Um, the guy I hunt with in Illinois, he's gotten to be a friend of mine. He's from Connecticut originally, and he moved to Illinois. So I like his philosophy. He has a lot of Northeast hunters, and so you hear about, oh, you know, you shoot anything under one forty, it's a five hundred dollar fine. Blah blah blah. He doesn't go by that. His thing is, I have a lot of guys from Massachusetts who've never seen a hundred and thirty inch deer. Why am I going to tell that guy not to shoot that deer? So his thing is, hey, if you want to shoot it, then go ahead, shoot it. Yeah. And um, which is a good mindset. But like I said, I, I, my thought always is, hey, unless it's, you know, the real holy crap deer, you know, don't shoot that first one just so you can enjoy the experience. Because 
you know, with the right weather, there's going to be more coming. Um, so I like to see people get to see that, you know, sit there and see an Illinois rut where one doe comes into heat and all of a sudden there's five, six, seven bucks running through, you know, chasing, checking the scent, all that stuff. Um, yeah. So that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what I like to tell people just to, you know, and, and also to say, Hey, even in Illinois, you know, 160 inches aren't behind every tree. <laughs> no, that's true. So, so don't, you know, again, be realistic. If you see, you know, if the outfitter doesn't have any rules on it, but if you see the biggest buck you've ever seen, why not shoot it? It's bigger than anything else you've ever shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, to your point, so, expectations. Expectations are important yeah. no matter where you hunt. They are, because I see so many people who go out there, uh, you know, in hunting with my friend, who just have this expectation of 150, 160-inch deer. Oh, that's that's all I'm going to shoot. That's all I'm going to shoot. You know, it's not that that can't happen. I've, I've certainly been out there with uh, 180, 190-inch deer. I have not shot, but I've been there when other people have shot them. And... To be ruined by that expectation, I think that kind of stinks. Um, you know, anytime you can go sit in the woods and see lots of deer and see some bucks, I think that's a good day. Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, PJ, I unfortunately have to wrap this up because of a, of a sure. hard stop on my end tonight, unfortunately. But uh, this has been fun. It's been neat to get to hear the the Northeast perspective. And um, I think there's a lot of people who can relate to that that enjoy this too. So if people yeah, want so. to, yeah, yeah, if people want to learn more about, you know, what you're doing or where you're writing, uh, where can they go online sure. to find some stuff? We, our website is LancasterArchery.com. Uh, and when you're on there, you'll see a little tab on the right side that says articles and videos. We do, um, we have no boundaries. Anything to do with archery, you may find on there. That's uh, you know we found the simplest stuff to the most complicated. Um, we try to provide it all, so um, that's where you'll find the bulk. Um, we have a YouTube channel as well, Lancaster Archery. Um, they can find videos there. Um, so that's that's probably the best place to find all that information. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to link to all that. So if anyone listening wants to see some of those things, we will have links on the blog as well. And PJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mark. I sure appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Good luck this upcoming season. Hey, thanks. You too. And that's going to do it for episode number 142. Before we shut it completely down, though, really quickly, I want to thank our current partners who have made this podcast possible. So, Big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Carbon Express, and Huntera Maps. And finally, big, big thanks to you guys. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you've got some big sheds in your future, and I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules 
from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 